Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and we're having our friend Alicia Childers back on the broadcast. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you. Oh, great to be back with you. You've written yet another book. I'm not going to go through her CV or uh, Vita or information. It'll be in the show notes, and we've had her on before, so I'm going to trust that you are well aware of who she is and what she's doing. I want to jump right in. This new book, Live Your Truth. Let's back up a notch. You and I probably talked about this last time, and my friend Christopher Yuvon, as well as Janet Parshall and I recently talked about, I asked them questions, and they said, nope, we have to go back and talk about truth. Mm. And I thought, this is an interesting new baseline because there is no truth. It's your truth. It's what's relative. Be true to yourself. So before we jump into your book, talk about what happened to the word truth and what it means today, or rather doesn't mean today. Mm. We're diving right in. I love it. So yeah, I agree with <laughs> Janet and Christopher on that, that it's almost one of the most challenging points to evangelism today is just convincing people that there is an ultimate reality that exists when it comes to religion and morality, and that that reality can be known. So I think what our, our culture has done is sort of adopted this postmodern type of mood, which would essentially say, you live your truth, I'll live my truth. And I think the reason that we've gotten here, it's not like most people are walking around saying, yes, I am postmodern or I'm a relativist. In fact, most people actually don't live like relativists in their everyday lives. They go to the bank, they expect their money to be there, they're going to agree about certain facts about logic and science and mathematics and things like that. But what our culture has done, and really Francis Schaeffer and Nancy Piercy were the ones who pointed this out, is that our culture sort of has this two-tiered view of truth. It's like this approach that would relegate certain things like math, science, logic to absolute truth, but then religion and morality into just kind of whatever's relative to each person. In fact, it's like a rejection of the idea that objective truth can be known on those issues. Mm -hmm. And so it really just, when it comes to religion and morality, for most people in our culture, it really comes to just what works for you. You find the, you know, maybe the practical bits from different religious philosophies or different ways of thinking, and you kind of put it all together to make this custom-made religion and morality that works for you and yourself, but you're really not supposed to tell anybody else that they've gotten it wrong because, you know, if you've adopted the idea that those things can't be known, if they even exist at all, then it would be very intolerant and very rude to tell somebody that their truth is incorrect. And so we do kind of have to take a step back and make a case for objective truth, especially when it comes to religion and morality, because most people just don't operate as if that's a reality. We've had Nancy on the podcast in the past, and um, I love her Saving Leonardo as well as Total Truth book, but they're not for the faint of heart. Those are texts that uh, most people aren't going to dive into, and, and Nancy's writing to a different audience. That said, help the average person out who says, well, I shared this with my friend, and they said, that's true for you. That's your truth, but I have my truth. So how do you block and bridge and begin with that, mm. Lisa? 
Yeah, no, that's great because it is true. It used to be you could tell your testimony to somebody and they might be really convicted by it or persuaded to want, you know, to want to find truth in religion as well as like you have. But today you could tell somebody your amazing testimony and they could legitimately be happy for you, be excited to hear that you found something that works for you. Yeah. But there's not really this connection that that would have any impact on their life because they're operating from this completely other approach to truth. So I think one of the ways that we can sort of help each other along with this is just demonstrating that relativism fails just as an approach it fails even to just say you know even when it comes to religion that all truth is relative well that's a statement of objective reality that's actually making a claim about what's objectively true about the world and that claim is that truth is relative when it comes to religion so if there's at least that one objective truth then the statement itself is false. So we're showing how it refutes itself. And I see things like this all the time, just statements that refute themselves. Like, for example, I see this all the time on Facebook where somebody might say, love is more important than belief. And, and what, it just, what we need to challenge each other to do is really think about what the statement is saying. The statement is a belief that love is more important than belief. Well, if love is more important belief, then it's more important than that belief, which makes the statement false. So just... Basic critical thinking, I think, is step one. Getting some good training and some logical fallacies. Of course, there's a law of logic called the law of non-contradiction, which just basically says that two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. And we can apply that to religion. So one way I've found it to be helpful to help people understand that when it comes to religion, it's not just your truth or my truth. Surely there are some principles different religions have in common, but at their core, they violate the law of non-contradiction. They contradict one another. So just for a test case, take Christianity and Islam. Of course, Islam and Christianity both teach a lot about Jesus. They have a high regard for Jesus. They both teach that Jesus is a prophet. There's things we have in common, but there's a fundamental difference in that Islam teaches that Jesus never died, whereas Christianity basically stands or falls based on Jesus being resurrected from the dead. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in, in your sins. So we need we have to have a resurrection for Christianity to be true, right? And yet Islam teaches Jesus never died. Well, if he never died, he couldn't be resurrected. So those two religions fundamentally contradict each other. So if Islam is right, then that would actually prove Christianity false. And if Christianity is right, it would prove Islam false because Christianity makes claims of exclusivity for itself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, if that's actually true, then it's true for everyone, which means it has eternal consequences for everyone. And I think that's maybe we can help each other to, to be thinking in those terms because Christianity doesn't give you the opportunity to just keep it in the my truth sphere. It's not like a favorite flavor of ice cream where you could say, well, yours is chocolate, mine's vanilla. We'll just, you know, we won't tell each other we're wrong on that because that's an opinion or a preference. But if Christianity is true, it claims, it makes a lot of claims about itself that make claim on every single person. And so I think that if we can adjust our thinking on that, then that will help us to help others to, to think through these things in a better, more clear way. We've moved from a, uh, postmodern to post-postmodern sort of, you know, epitaph, if you will. And, and some of the nomenclature right now that's very common is moralistic, theistic deism. 
and that seems to rule the day. You you come from an arts background, the the worship music, the singing, the artist mind, and we we've been here in, in Middle Tennessee now fifteen years, and I still don't understand <laughs> the, the the artist side of things. But that's almost permeated some of this language that we're we're well beyond what's true for you. Mm. And for example, and I, I have a love-hate, we'll talk about social media, obviously, because this is part of your book. I have a love-hate, more hate now with all social media, because two plus two doesn't equal four. That's right. Math is racist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and these are measurable, repeatable functions. You can use sticks, you can use rocks, you can use coins to demonstrate two plus two is four. That's not some racist or, you know, systematic racist that needs to be corrected. But our, our culture has lost so much of its mooring. And I, I mean, I have a thesis, but you're the expert in this. So what happened that we moved from post-modernity to this moralistic therapeutic deism? Mm. Well, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm like you. I'm trying to figure this out as we go along as well. But I really do see the influence of postmodernism But combined with a very particular dynamic that I've observed, I'm actually researching the deconstruction movement right now, and I see this dynamic all over the place. So it's not just enough that our culture has said, well, we can't apprehend truth when it comes to religion and morality. They've actually come, they've sort of married that to a bit of a a theory that's rooted in Marxism, which is called critical theory. And basically, critical Mm -hmm. theory critiques power structures along the lines of race, gender, ability, and various other factors. And it kind of separates everybody out into this classes of oppressed versus oppressor. Now, a lot of people think, well, you can just contain that conversation to issues of race. You really actually can't because it's along the lines of all the different classes. So that's why so many in our culture are confused as to why the LGBTQ conversation has almost become the same conversation as the race conversation. Because those in the view of critical theory, it's all about critiquing power. So think about this. I was thinking about this the other day, how kind of it's a clever thing to where if you want to be in the oppressed group, which is kind of ironic that you would actually want to be in the oppressed group because that actually gives you more moral authority to speak on these issues. All you have to do is identify as one of the letters of the LGBTQ, and there you are in an oppressed class to where you actually are viewed to have more moral authority to speak to issues of oppression and things like this. So just, I think, put simply, building upon what we talked about before, people have rejected the idea that Truth can can be known when it comes to religion and morality. So when Christians come around claiming to know what it is, people aren't interacting with the claims Christians are making. It's not like they're saying, oh, I think you're wrong because of X, Y, or Z, or I think there's evidence to show that you are incorrect on this fact. That's not the conversation that's happening. What they're doing is because they don't think you can know the truth in that area, they're viewing it through that power dynamic. They're viewing your truth claim as a power grab. So that's why when the Christian comes along and says, hey, Jesus is the only way, hell is a real place, humans are sinners, they need to be reconciled to a holy God, in the minds of many people in culture, and certainly especially in the deconstruction movement, that is viewed as people just trying to prop up something like white supremacy or trying to prop up some oppressive system that they want to be, 
you know, have a higher level ranking in. They're just trying to control the narrative and keep people sort of in their place. And so it's an interesting phenomenon, like you mentioned, that somebody just even saying, now, I don't think this is caught in the wild yet. It's definitely in academia and it's trickling down. But the idea that two plus two could equal five and it's racist and it's, you know, oppressive to say because the whole system of logical thinking and reason is assigned to the idea of white supremacy. And so if you even come in with categories like that, you must be racist. You must be trying to prop up these institutions of power. And so really this is coming all from, I think it's it's informed by Marxism, which is really, they're not trying to find unity or try to find some sort of way to work together. It, it's that the whole system needs to be torn down and, and we need to start over. So that, that's what's informing it. But it's a wild time to be alive, isn't it? It's pretty chaotic out there. Okay. <laughs> I, I tell our church, Probably every other Sunday. I never saw this coming. I didn't. I don't recognize our country anymore. It's just. It's astonishing. But you know, I, I remember when postmodernity was a big thing, and I actually heard Francis Schaeffer lecture many times, and see Everett Koop, who I have great respect for. Everything they said came true, mm. and it, it was kind of chilling. Uh, Schaeffer had a comment: "What was once unthinkable." Once it becomes thinkable, will soon become a reality. And he was talking about infanticide, specifically in euthanasia. He said, once you open the door for abortion, it will be a very short time before infanticide and euthanasia. Well, Kevorkian brought us euthanasia, and that still goes on. And we have infanticide more often than we want to talk about. On that cheery note, um, let's let's dive into your book a little more. Again, we're talking about your new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. <laughs> you talk about uncovering common lies. You talk about holding on to the soul-restoring truths that God offers in his word. You talk about empowering yourself to live, which I find it interesting you use that word. <laughs> Is that, that must be in the copy of the description. <laughs> yeah. I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm teasing. I'm like, what I'm did teasing. we write? I got to look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someone tells me, you said in the sermon, I said, wait a minute, I've slept since then. Don't go. Yeah, <laughs> right. don't go. Um, let, let's talk about just in the interaction, social media has opened a weird Pandora's box of interaction that's truncated, that's not fact-checked, that's just someone's crazy opinion in a colorful display, and people believe it. What do we do with this, Lisa? Mm, I am in that fight right now. I'm telling you, as I research deconstruction, which is, you know, 90% of that's happening on TikTok, which is a head-scratching phenomenon that— you have, and I, I see this every day in my research, you have somebody with a very charismatic personality, somebody that looks really good. They will take 27 seconds and attempt to undo the entire Christian worldview and have a close to a million views, hundreds of thousands of likes of people saying. And in many cases, sometimes they're, they're, build, they're twisting actual facts, but in many cases, they are just saying things that are— so easy to prove. I mean, even liberal scholars and, and progressive well, it's scholars. Huh? It's just fabrication. It's just fabrication. It's fabrication. just saying even, something. Even yeah. the most liberal atheist Bible scholars would be cringing at what some of these people are saying, right? It's like, <laughs> that's not even close to a, a reality. Right. But yet hundreds of thousands of people are like, oh, this is just 
changing my life. Thank you for this. So it's, um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. But in the book I talk about, we've almost like recreated the Tower of Babel. You know, the world once again mm-hmm. speaks with one language. And that didn't work out so good the first time. And, you know, it's funny because so many people think that (laughs) unity is like the highest virtue. Unity is so great. We just want to be unified. Well, they were unified at Babel, but they were unified for a nefarious purpose. And God had to separate them out, right? And so here we are again. So, again, diagnosis can be, you know, maddening. But I'm going to push and ask you again, how did we get here? Mm. You know, I've been a— pastor for north of you know over 42 years and in ministry and i the, the fact that evangelical is a bad word yeah the fact that teaching the bible expositionally is a dinosaur's you know yeah. uh, project how do we get here well one of the i mean there's certainly i'm sure a lot of factors that i don't even know about but one of the things that i could discern that has really pushed this kind of like more recent snowball is a series of books that have been written by self-professed evangelicals. They've been called the Evangelical Deconstruction Project. And many of these books are sort of propping up the idea, because you mentioned evangelical, which is what made me think about this, whereas it used to be we would define evangelical theologically, right? The the Bebbington's quadrilateral of, you know, biblical authority, atoning work of Christ on the cross, a personal conversion, missionary, you know, evangelism, and and those sorts of things. Um, but, But this new sort of crop of books is arguing that evangelicalism isn't defined theologically, but it's actually defined by these perceived behavior patterns and characteristics. And then they spin what those characteristics are to make evangelicalism look like it's this big, oppressive, almost cult. I see it referred to as a cult. Uh, Now, I'm not saying any of these books do that, but on TikTok you see it, on Twitter you see it, people telling their stories almost as if they're coming out of Scientology. Now, I'm sure there are some cases where maybe they were in an environment that was very cultish. I'm not going to say that never happens. But evangelicalism as a movement has been reframed as an almost cultish type of power structure that is largely just existing to prop up what they say, whiteness, and how white people think about theology. So there's like this white theology versus, you know, other types of theology. And so these books, though, these books are written by people who claim to be evangelicals. It's a very tricky and slippery thing. So it's led a lot of people to go into the ex-evangelical movement. But interestingly, ex-evangelical doesn't mean just not being an evangelical anymore. It it just means it, it really is synonymous with deconversion because they're throwing out all of these core gospel issues in the name of, you know, liberating themselves from oppression. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And a lot of people, I don't think, are really all that aware of how much influence these authors in these books have had. When I was in a seminary, we were— discussing in great detail a liberation theology. Oh, yeah. And this, this, of course, was a huge thing in the Latin cultures because the idea that Jesus was the liberator and ergo, in a way, it's almost like the Tea Party or the Always Trumpers is there's this internal, we're going to use the Bible to leverage our liberation, to leverage our point, to leverage our, and, you know, I mean, dominion theology, again, in my history, was not a threat, but it was undercurrent. Mm. 
if you get enough Christians in positions of authority and power and elected and so forth, you bring back the kingdom. And we were to, and they, they extrapolated that from having dominion over creation, which of course was, you know, a horrific exegesis. Nevertheless, hundreds of thousands of people followed dominion theology, which in no small part was a lot of what Christian television was yeah, for many, right. many years. And now it's only people my age and older who parked themselves in front of, you know, the few remaining Christian networks that still have that voice. Now we're in, you mentioned TikTok. I have, this is where I'm a dinosaur. I won't look at, I don't have a TikTok account. The only time I see it is when it comes across my Instagram feed. And I always ask my oldest daughter and my son-in-law who are smart in tech, why is it women in bikinis? Why can't women in bikinis on these Instagram feeds? I mean, they know I'm a man, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, TikTok. Nobody needs to be on TikTok. I'm doing research. It's terrible. It's a cesspool, that place. Well, and beyond the conspiracy things of China's influence on TikTok, but obviously you're you're getting your toe in the water, what is being propagated there. Again, I go back in, in our church, I, I say, bring a real Bible to church. Please don't open your phone. I'm going to give you a hard time if I see you opening your phone for your Bible. It doesn't help. But anyway, I, I just find people are not willing to study and read and think. And the truncation of information used to be Facebook, reduced to characters on Twitter, and now, more importantly, it's visual. Mm. You've obviously given thought to this because YouTube is our primary search engine. So when you think of the lies that we're accepting as truth, we're getting all our information from a video input. Thoughts on this yeah. versus reading and thinking? Well, I think, you know, if sure you're familiar with uh, Neil Postman and some of these predictions that oh, were made, you know, gosh. and this was really— Amusing ourselves to yeah, death. Yeah, and, and back then he was talking about television, right? <laughs> like this, like like a yeah, dinosaur yeah. to think about now. And, and you apply that to social media and things just and get right. smaller and shorter and more rapid in there. And that's why, like, I keep bringing up TikTok because there are so many—I mean, it's just been astonishing how you can have somebody with a million followers and nobody even knows their name because they're just good at those kind of quick little videos that make a snappy point and it's visually appealing. And we have, as a culture, lost our ability to think critically about anything um, I was just watching one the other day where a girl was in a very clever kind of conversational way. She was basically saying that the doctrine of original sin, basically telling somebody they're a sinner, is the same as an abusive spouse who tells the the other person, you know, beats them down so that they'll be dependent on them. She said it's the same thing. And you know what? In twenty in twenty seven seconds, and I'm thinking, you know, that would be compelling for somebody who wants to get rid of the idea that they're a sinner. I mean, that would be all you'd need. That's like, up oh, there's my excuse. That's great. That's a great comparison. And, and for a person that experienced any kind of that's abuse, right. That's right. That would be I'm a, right a really there. strong connection with that, with even their emotional background and the trauma that they might have experienced. So, yeah, it's it's man. I wish I I had a better answer on the how, but or the why, but. It's like, it is real, though. It is real. I remember being a kid and thinking, it's not good that I, you know, there was like a block of shows on Friday that I would watch that was like two hours. And I remember feeling convicted about that, that it was like a four 30-minute sitcoms that I would watch as a kid and like, this is not good for my spiritual life. I know this. And now it's like, I mean, nobody would think of sitting down for four different sitcoms for 30 it's like we got it we got to binge we got to have the next episode right away and you know you don't wait a week for the i mean some in some cases yeah, you still do yeah. but most people just binge their shows now and it's like i don't it's a crazy phenomenon 
I have often wondered what the economics behind that is because I'm like, well, waiting a week for the next Star Trek or the next Rifleman or Bonanza was like part of the drill, yeah. you know? And and now it's like, no, I'll watch eight seasons over on the <laughs> yeah, weekend and right. my brain will ooze out of my ears and I'll... All right, let me ask, because well, one, one of the questions that was suggested, I'll just put it out there. You say that being the captain of your own destiny and striving to make our dreams come true is a burden we were never meant to bear. And, you know, we live in this, I call it this epicenter of entrepreneurialism, mm. not bad, not for everybody. And this idea that your dream and, you know, it, it's almost back. There was a guy named Bill Gothard who is no longer really around, but Bill Gothard had this sequential thing. If you do these things, it always works out. Mm. And it was striking the parallels between, you know, nothing new under the sun. It just has a little different flavor to it. But we're faced with this, well, I've got this dream and I'm going to, I mean, the number of young people that we've talked to that they have this precise thing they want to do. And I say, let's think about job and life as a five finger glove. If three of your fingers fit, that's a pretty good glove. Mm. And they're like, no, it's got to be all five. I have to live my passion. I can't work a real job because it gets in the way of my passion. So unpack yeah. this for me. Help me understand. Oh, man. Well, I wonder if a lot of that isn't also just a cultural shift in value. You mentioned uh, therapeutic moralistic deism, where this was some research that was done in 2005, where they pulled the average American teenager what they thought about God. And of course, most teenagers thought that God was kind of like this giant therapist in the sky that would help them out if they needed something. But he's not going to tell you who you can or can't sleep with. He's not going to like be involved in your life in any meaningful sense. But, you know, as long as you're good and nice to other people, you know, he'll help you out if you need it. And so it, that's where that, that term was uh, coined. And all those kids are now adults, right? And so I think this is kind of where our culture is at. And ultimately, it, it assumes that the point of life is to have this fulfillment of, you know, this contentment and fulfillment in your vocation and in the things that you do. But that's really a shift from what I think the biblical—well, first of all, our purpose as humans is to worship God and be in his presence forever and worship him, um, be in relationship with him. That's our purpose. But then God kind of gave us this sort of— structure of the family. And it was for many years, like people, everything they did was for the family. Like my grandpa worked three jobs, mm -hmm. um, digging holes and working, you know, different things, just labor jobs, because he didn't have the perception that his life's fulfillment was going to be in those jobs. His life's fulfillment was in his family. He wanted to leave my grandmother a house that was paid off by the time he died. He, he was wanting to make a better life for his kids. Everything he did was sort of surrounding his family. But our culture shifted away from that. It's like we, we've feminism has sent women the message that, oh, gosh, if you have to stay home with your kids for a little while, what a drag, man. You know, you got to get back out there in the workforce. And, and we've made everything about your own personal fulfillment. I think Carl Truman speaks to this very well in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and then the sort of more lay-level version, The Strange New World, which was really helpful. I was very appreciative of the lay-level version of that. Yeah. But really just showing through Freud and Marx how we got to this idea that really our it's really sexuality. Our sexuality is really who we are. We've conflated our identity with that, and really then it's virtuous 
to whatever our deepest desires are to live those out in the most authentic way possible. And that takes all of the focus off of other things like our relationship with God, our families and in the home life, to just our own personal satisfaction and success with what we're doing with our vocations or whatever else outside the home. And so then the home and all that just sort of becomes secondary. It's like this thing you do when you kind of figure out all the other stuff. And it's really just a shift in mentality of what really matters in life. I remember in seminary, again, I'm, I'm mowing yards and pulling weeds, and I'm watching college-age kids in uh, North Dallas get a brand-new Porsche for their high school graduation or college graduation. And I remember I'm pulling weeds in this guy's yard watching this, and I'm arguing with the Lord, wait a minute. I'm in seminary. Aren't I more important than a kid with a snotty nose with bridge? I mean, it was a stupid dialogue, but it was, you need to do the best job pulling weeds, the best job maintaining this yard. And you need to stop comparing yourself because there'll always be people that will be a lot more, whatever, successful, wealthy by appearances, but you need to be faithful. And that was a real, I hate the term, but a defining moment for me, at least it was, you need to serve God faithfully period. And this culture is always going after money, sex, and power in Mm. in an interesting way. But anyway, I'm commenting, not asking the expert. So Hannah, my executive producer, had a couple of questions she wanted me to ask you. In, In your chapter where God just wants you to be happy, talk about Christian hedonism, and you mentioned promised suffering. Are we hedonists at heart, and are we going to suffer in reality? I think the Bible promises that. You know, when I was a little girl, my grandma gave me this little Bible promise book, and it was like 135 verses taken out of context. (laughs) And it was all these wonderful things that were going to happen if I followed Jesus. And, you know, but I think if we had a real promise book, it would be a lot smaller. (laughs) And it would say things like, in this world, you will have trouble, right? If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. Anyone who wishes to live a godly life will be persecuted, right? We have these types of promises. But then, of course, we have the greater promise that where Jesus said, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We have from James, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. So I think that there's a biblical theology of suffering that I don't know if it was just that there was sort of this in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like the prosperity gospel went unchecked a bit. Um, and before people were a really bit. willing to call it out, you know, sort a of bit. infiltrated I'm sorry. a bit, a it bit. Inf- but it infiltrated, you know, like we caught it. Even the even the churches that weren't teaching a prosperity gospel, we kind of caught it. And we kind of adopted this idea that um, the point of life is to be happy. Like God just wants you to be successful and wealthy and, and all of these things. When in reality, the Bible promises that it's going to be difficult It's going to be hard sometimes to follow Jesus. We're going to wake up some days and it's not going to feel like it's working for us. We're not going to just have this euphoric feeling of the presence of God every day. It's going to be tough. And Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Which is so, if we really thought about how countercultural that is right now, the world would say, if anyone wishes to follow after me, let him find himself. Let him, you know, live his truth and follow him. But Jesus is like, no, you actually have to deny yourself. And so I think that we are promised suffering. But here's the good news. The great—but suffering is only a bad thing if you only think of your life in the here and the now. 
If you really think about your life as just what happens in the 70, 80 years that you get here on earth, then you would want to avoid suffering. If that was it and then lights out, well, yeah, avoid suffering. Why wouldn't you? But as Christians, we have an eternal perspective. We're, we're not looking at this thing in the scope of 70, 80 years. This is eternity we're talking about. Everything we do here on earth has eternal ramifications. Mm. And so the suffering that we do endure, um, first of all, makes—I mean, think about—I always tell people, think about the people that you know that have suffered the most who have also— clung to Christ in that suffering. They're wiser than the rest of us. They have more peace than the rest of us. They have a deeper, more abiding joy than the rest of us. They're stronger than the rest of us. They're more compassionate than the rest of us. And so there's there's something to be said about when we suffer. God, we should not underestimate God's word when he says, that he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He uses even our darkest experiences, our most difficult trials, and he turns those for good for us. And in so many ways, and just ask people who have suffered. They'll tell you. I quote Johnny Erickson Tata in my book. Oh, I, I quote from Elizabeth Elliot. I talk about Corey Ten Boom. I mean, these are people who have suffered yes. beyond what most of us will experience. And they will tell you, there's a beautiful—I wish I had it off the top of my head, but there's a beautiful line that Johnny Erickson Tata wrote in the foreword of the uh, biography of Elizabeth Elliot's life about tasting the sufferings of Christ and, and just drawing from the well of that to the deepest joy. And that's something that people who, you know, maybe those of us who haven't suffered on that level can't quite understand. But we can look to that as evidence of what— God says is true, that he will work things together for our good. Look how many people's lives have been touched by the ministry of Corey Ten Boom and uh, Johnny Erickson Tata and Elizabeth Elliot, who have truly suffered. And so anyway, I think that, yeah, this whole idea that life's just about being happy and uh, we should avoid suffering, this is why we're in the problem we're in. Think about college campuses where you have a generation of kids who have virtually only had their feelings validated. And they haven't had to press against disagreement. They haven't had to press against somebody saying, I'm sorry that you're having a hard day, but you still have to take your test, right? They can go to a safe space. They don't have to take the test. Uh, and this is making us weaker. It's making us unable to function as adults. And I don't know why people can't see it. I don't know why it's not more obvious to more people. But I think that that's why we just have to get off the hamster wheel of culture and live according to biblical principles, which have— been proven true over thousands of years. I mean, this this just look at the lives of people. It's true. You mentioned John Erickson Tata, who's a dear friend. And I, I when I talk to her, I always say, Johnny, I feel like I have a hangnail when I complain to you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, with what she deals with. But there's a Phillips Brooks quote that was from a 1884 devotional called The Candle of the Lord. He says, the reason we are led into trouble and out again is not merely that we may value happiness the more from having lost it once and found it again. Pause there for a second. I think most Christians, including myself, who lives with chronic pain, pray, okay, Lord, let, let me get through this. Uh, whatever I need to learn, let me learn. Code language for let me learn it so I don't suffer anymore. And this is universal. But Brooks continues, but that we may know something which we could not have known except by that teaching, and here's the language I love, that we may bear upon our nature 
some impress that we could not have been stamped except on natures just so softened to receive it. Mm. And I love that language because the suffering that we endure, and I think for Christians today, it's suffering. It, it really is probably standing for Christ. I, I used to comment, we'll probably never be persecuted for the gospel. I think we are, and I think we will be more and more because when you look at this crazy culture, and and even I keep wondering when they're going to pull me off YouTube or pull me off you know, whatever, and probably you have the same question in your mind is at some point they're going to say no, but it's, it's a, and I don't think our younger men and women are prepared. I think they're, anyway, I'm prattling. I do this. No, it's good. Good stuff. So let let me ask you the follow-up on this. And this is one that's been thrown at me too. Matthew seven and judge not that you should not be judged. That's a real convenient verse to use when I'm in a corner and uh, I don't like, you know, you're judging. I, I interchange with a guy that I've been on his podcast. I was going back and forth with him on some bad information. And he said, I feel like you're judging me. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought we were having a conversation about information that was right or wrong, <laughs> but he felt right. I was judging him. <laughs> right. Help yeah, me this is something. Yeah, we see this a lot. In fact, I'm glad you brought up that example because that ties in with our conversation that we started out with, with the kind of postmodern people have sort of, because it's their truth is is fused with their identity. If you disagree with somebody, you're actually disagreeing with their essence or their being, their actual existence, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the perception. But this whole don't judge thing, this is what, you know, we like to call the atheist's favorite Bible verse. This is the, the verse everybody pulls out if you <laughs> make any sort of claim about objective reality when it comes to religion or morality. And so, of course, it's taken out of context, because if you look at the context within which we find this verse, Jesus is actually giving instructions on how to judge. He even says in that same context, don't throw your pearls before pigs or, you know, give what is holy to the dog. So you have to kind of make judgments about people to know who the pigs are and who the dogs are. And Jesus is actually giving us instructions on how to do that. And of course, this is the famous verse where he says, take the log out of your own eye Now, what he says is, so that you will see clearly to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the whole point is to help your brother take the speck out of his eye, but to make sure you take a look in the mirror first, make sure you don't have a big log sticking out of your eye. So the point Jesus is making is not that we never make judgments about people. It's that we don't do it hypocritically. That's the main point he's making there. Don't be a hypocrite when you're going to confront a brother in their sin and help them take the speck out of their eye or whatever it might be. And we know this is true also because in in John's gospel, Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we actually are commanded to judge. Now, what I mean by that is not, I'm not talking about condemning somebody's soul to heaven or hell. I don't have the power to do that. They will face their ultimate judge on those matters. But Jesus talked about wolves. He talked about these uh, false teachers that will come into the church. And Jesus actually says, you will recognize them by their fruit. So we are to judge who the false teachers are. That's important. That's a command of Jesus. And we're supposed to recognize them by their fruit. And of course, when we look about how the New Testament talks about good fruit and bad fruit, it's not talking about good feelings or, you know, you you judge the fruit of if they feel happy in their lives or content. No, you judge the fruit of obedience and bad fruit is disobedience. So any teacher that's giving an okay to sin or has, you know, this, you judge the fruit of obedience in their life and in their teaching. That's how you judge those things. So Jesus gave lots of instructions on how to judge, but that the whole point of that verse is just not be a hypocrite when you do it. 
I so appreciate you bringing up the fruit because I have been fighting this fight for decades that, you know, you'll know them by their fruit. And I go, you have to look at that very carefully in context, what it does and doesn't mean. Because more often than not, it's talking about the false prophet and the false information, not talking about a Christian who bears good fruit, which we could talk about. That's right. They're two different things, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, it says. Yes. Um, in, In tandem with this, when you hear this comment and, you know, I, I use the illustration, the stop sign, and I'll say, when you come to the stop sign, did you feel judged? The stop sign is a moral law. You need to stop lest you injure others or yourself. When you come to a traffic intersection and there's traffic lights, that's a moral judgment on your behavior. You can't just drive like there's no tomorrow. You can't run through that intersection. You will harm yourself and or others. And it's almost too pedantic. It's like, well, you know, that's not how I feel. And this is another part I'm sure you address in in your book. Feelings have eclipsed truth Mm. to such a point that I don't always know, I don't know how to help a person when they're so driven by this person who says, I feel like you're judging me. I feel Mm. like you're judging me. And I go, no, I thought we were arguing about a fact. And either right. it's right or it's wrong, not how you feel. You've talked about it's tied to their identity. But how do we move them back from, it's not always your emotional. I mean, James Dobson wrote a book, gosh, 50 years ago called Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And I heard him interviewed one time and he said, you know, I don't know if the book was 200 pages long, but he goes, I spent 200 pages saying no. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, feelings are real. They're valid. But they change, and they're not truth. So help me out, Lisa. Well, I love your analogy of the stop sign because it's almost as if the laws we have tell people what they can and can't do with their bodies. You know, we have this, not to take it into the abortion arena here, but, you know, people saying, keep your law off my body, as if abortion laws are the only laws that tell you what you can and can't do with your body. Stopping at a stop sign, stopping at a traffic light tells you what you can and can't do with your body. Do not, you know, you're not allowed to murder people. That's telling you what you can and can't do with your body. So maybe just the how questions are hard because people just don't seem to want to be reasoned with these days. But maybe demonstrating some of those things, showing people that, you know, every law we have is a, is a judgment, you know, on what people should or shouldn't do morally. All laws really legislate uh, morality, morality, right? Yeah. They're legislating what we can and can't do, what's right and wrong, what we should and shouldn't do, what we ought and ought not do. And so maybe just sort of swinging the context out into a a broader scope so people can see that really there's an emotional thing going on with a particular thing and maybe helping them to see that, you know, why is that the case with this one but not so much with the stopping at the stoplight? Nobody, You're right. Nobody feels judged being told to stop at a stoplight. And or a stop sign. So um, maybe just trying to expose some of the logical fallacies that are underneath some of these things might be a helpful way to go about it. You talk about objective truth. So how do how do we get objective? Because everything we've talked about is how I feel subjective. Right, right. So the way I like to explain this to like audiences when I'm speaking is I'll ask people, you know, what is the best flavor of ice cream? And then people will yell out different things, you know, Rocky Road, strawberry, whatever it might be. And then I'll say, well, I say that the best flavor of ice cream is pecan praline. So who decides between us 
what is the actual best flavor of ice cream? And everybody's kind of like, they don't know what to say. And I say, well, nobody can because that's an opinion. We're making claims about truth, but we're not dealing in the realm of objective truth because this is what's called an opinion. There is no best flavor of ice cream in objective reality because this is a subjective claim. We're basically saying this, we're deciding the best flavor of ice cream based on our own minds. It's what's between our own ears. It's based on me, the subject. So that's a claim, a subjective claim, but it's not in the realm of objective truth. It's just an opinion. It's a preference, right? But then I ask them, you know, if anybody has type 1 diabetes or knows someone with type 1 diabetes, my stepson has type 1 diabetes, so that's kind of a reality in our family. And only a few hands will get raised, and then I'll say, what's the best treatment for diabetes? And every single one of them say insulin. Nobody says vitamin C. Nobody says sugar. They all, and I say, now that's interesting that nobody's saying, you're not debating over what the best, you know, treatment is or what's the best way to control diabetes. You all know what it is. And I say, so what will happen if, let's say, the person with diabetes says, I think the best treatment for diabetes is um, high doses of vitamin D? Well, they're going to die. And so objective reality will bear out despite what your opinion might be about it. Mm. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about objective truth. It's something that's based on the object outside of your actual opinion. It's not dependent upon you, the subject. But our culture has done a flip-flop. They've said, no, when it comes to so many of these things, and as you pointed out, even mathematics and other things, it's relative to each person. It's based on the subject. But that can't work if that's the case. If it's true that moral truths and religious truths and all these are just subjective, then really it just comes down to whoever's the biggest and strongest and can implement what they think is morally right that gets to win the day. And anybody looking just a cursory look at world history will tell you that that has worked out with tragic results (laughs) throughout history. I mean, the the biggest and the strongest are not always morally right. Yeah, I still remember reading um, John Gardner's massive papers they were put in a book later called on leadership and his his chapter on power began with hitler was an effective leader Mm. and i just sat there and went what a comprehensive statement Mm -hmm. you know but it was all evil and uh right okay let's in the time we have remaining because i'd I'd listen to you for hours and hours and hours social media you can't just tell your kids don't watch tiktok you can't just tell them i mean i remember and hannah tells the funny story about when we first had aol dial up and i gave her you know 30 minutes and she said it was such a cruel thing because it took forever for it to log on and it was (laughs) so slow (laughs) it's like you know but today with technology being what it is and friends being who they are any kid at a very early age is exposed to the screen. Uh, Kirby Anderson and I were talking about the screen generation, the generation that's never not known a screen. And you're talking about TikTok a lot. What do you do with this? You still have younger kids, uh, yeah. younger children. I mean, you just say no, and that's the way it works. Well, yes and no. So uh, we do not allow our kids to have social media. They don't have that. They don't have f- their own pages on any platform. And we and t- and I definitely don't let them just go on TikTok. But what we will do is what I want to do is model. I want to disciple them 
by teaching them how to interact with media because it's in, it's unavoidable. You can't, unless you just become Amish or something, you are going to have <laughs> screens around you. You're going to have to learn and know how to interact with those screens. And so with our kids, I mean, we're in the, listen, we do not have it all figured out and we do not execute this perfectly every well, day. Well, forget this then. I mean, I'm done with you. <laughs> I mean, you know, really, we're in the fight, too. But to the best of our ability, what we do is we limit that screen time and we disciple our kids on how to use it. So one one example is that it's unavoidable that your kids are going to know about TikTok. But I would strongly, strongly urge parents, do not let your kids just have access to TikTok because it is it is really a cesspool. It's way worse than all the other ones. And so what I'll do with my daughter is she knows she can't go on TikTok, but together, sometimes just before bed or, you know, we'll we'll do a little thing where we'll kind of snuggle up. And on YouTube, you can watch compilations of clean TikToks. And they're just, they're funny. And some of them are a little inappropriate, but we'll talk through those and just how to navigate all of that. But mostly it's just people being silly and being funny. So it's sort of the curated version of the, just the funniest, you know, stupid TikToks yeah, that are yeah. kind of fun. So we'll watch those and we'll, but we're always discerning. I think that's the thing that a lot of Christian parents, um, we can feel we can feel so overwhelmed with all of the access kids have and there's always a workaround and all of these things but the best thing like like just here's an example i had a hard rule when my kids were younger that we were never going to do the whole iphone smartphone thing with them my daughter would say, when can I do an iPhone? And I would, I would say, when you have a job and you can buy one for yourself. But I started rethinking that as she got older because I thought, well, I have, you know, precious few years to yes. teach her how to use that technology. So we're slowly dipping our toe into that with lots of restrictions and teaching how to, you know, navigate and what to be thinking about as we dip our toe in those waters. But I did change my mind on that because really I have precious few years to disciple her in that area. Like if she just goes and buys an iPhone at 18 and has no, you know, sort of concept about how to navigate that as a Christian, I will have failed. Now, I'm not saying every parent has to buy their kid an iPhone. This is just our choice, what we've decided to do. But it's active discipleship. It's discipling our kids through all their media, everything they're interacting with, and not just saying, here's a screen, I'll see you in two hours, you know? It's not unlike the, again, my day when you send them off to a secular college or even a Christian university, these parents at homeschooled and they had high guardrails and the moment you give, I use the illustration of guardrails, that parents are guardrails, and they're, they're high and tight when they're little, and they get bigger and bigger. But once you hand them the keys to the car, they have no guardrails, and they're going to do what they want. And they go off to any Christian colleges are not exempt from this. It's all there. It's all oh, yeah. open. Why? And I saw kids. I went to a secular college. I came to Christ later, so it was different for me. I saw kids that were fine Christian kids that were drunk and doing drugs and sleeping around because it was the first time they didn't have those restraints. Those guardrails were so high. And to your point, there was not that discipleship cuddle time of saying, okay, when you encounter this, what are you going to do? Um, mm -hmm. But I also try to console parents. Your kids are free agents. They're going to do what they want to do, and the Lord's got to work on their heart and mind. You know, you can't control it, right? Yeah, yeah. So you can do your best to teach them how to discern. Here's a great example, just very quickly. I know we're short on time here, but my mom, and we joke about this. She knows that, you know, I tell this story, but she was very strict about sugar. We had, like, no sugar growing up. She loosened up later, but, like, until I hit about middle school— 
I, I mean, I had maybe three candy bars in my entire life. Wow. Well, I get to my, my middle school that has a candy bar vending machine. <laughs> and you better believe I ate about six candy bars every single day. Every day? Oh, well, maybe. I mean, Whoa. it might have been that. Maybe not every day. But I was just hitting that thing hard because it was like, <laughs> nobody can tell me I can't have this. And it was, you know, you know, it's not good. When I was at Moody, they called it the freshman 15. These kids would oh, yeah. come in there and just eat like there was no tomorrow. Okay, uh, <laughs> two real quick landing questions. Read Lisa's new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. What are they going to take away? What's one, two, three things that, you know, quickly that you want them to know? Well, here's my goal in writing the book was that if there are people in your life who are following some of these really pop-level uh, social media influencers that are kind of Christian-ish, but they're really presenting a more progressive kind of Christianity, fo- telling people to focus on themselves. And they're kind. you notice they're being kind of accepting some of these lies without thinking. I really wrote this book with them in mind. It's very, very easy to read. I wrote it on such a level that you could hand it to a high schooler. Um, there's a lot of storytelling. There's humor. There's um, But there's a lot of really good biblical stuff in there, too. But I wanted it to feel like we're just sitting down having coffee, and I'm telling you what the Bible has to say about these things, but also joking about where it's gone wrong and and just being very conversational. So this is definitely a book you could give to somebody who might be following some of these, you know, empower yourself websites. It might persuade them. But also, it just hopefully will speak clarity. It's all the lies we believe about ourselves in culture. And what I wanted to do with the book, too, is not just give all the, oh, that's wrong because of this, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, but really show how the Bible gives us such a better way to live. Not Mm -hmm. only is it spiritually life-giving, but it's actually life-giving in the practical, too. It's just a much better way to live. The reference in 1 Peter where it talks about stop sinning and turn, and I love that Mm -hmm. because it's never just don't do this. It's turn to something good. And one of the big lies we believe is that Money, sex, and power are the outcomes and the best we can hope for where walking with Christ and, you know, the right kind of use of money, sex, and power is a good thing when it's used the way he designed it. And you talked earlier about a turn. The older I get, the more plagued I am with that because my mm-hmm. runway is shorter as we age. And you think about what am I doing with this time? And we also have limitations as we get older. Things change. And so you have to ask the answer, okay, I have fewer hours in some respects because of age and changes in life as older people do. What are you doing with it? So anyway, love, 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 love what you're doing. So appreciative and respectful for what you're doing. And I pray God's uh, empowerment and kindness as you continue your next And your next book is? Well, it's about deconstruction. We don't have a title yet. We're going to try to get it out fairly quickly if we can. So it's just about finished. We're going to be turning it in here real soon and no title yet, but it'll be about the phenomenon of deconstruction. As with all information is in the show notes on the program, uh, if you have any questions about how you find a book or where you buy it, don't fret. Just use your whatever search engine you use. Put Alicia Childers' name in there, and it will populate very quickly. Buy the book. And I would add one little caveat with this book. One of the things I used to do, and I, I probably should resume it, I would Xerox off one chapter And I would hand it to a friend and say, read this and give me your opinion. Because today people aren't going to run out and read a book, especially if it's one that's going to confront them. But you might find a chapter or even a couple of stories, as she's mentioned in her book, 
photocopy a couple of pages and give it to him and say, read it. I'd love your opinion. And that just might provoke. Uh, the other thing I would say to our friends, you're not in a small group. You're not maybe, you got a group of friends you hang with. Bring up a good question. What's truth? How do we know? And you'll be shocked how easy it is to talk to other people about Christ. But you have to step out there. You have to take a little bit of a risk. Alicia, thank you again for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Hope to see you soon on the next book you've got coming out. And uh, blessings on your family and your ministry and all that you got going on. Oh, thanks so much. I loved it. And I love that idea of the Xerox copy. Definitely do that. That's good. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 